Morning Temple Baptist Church. How are we doing this morning? That is good to hear. That is good to hear. I was kind of hoping um, that if Jason hadn't told y'all who I was, that I could just come up here and y'all would think I was Dr. Reggie and we could go on and, and things would, would, would go just fine. Um, but that was not the case. If you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and turn to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in chapter 1 this morning. Um, Jason, I, I need to point out, you did, you did mess up one time in my introduction this morning, and Dr. Reggie would be upset if I didn't correct you. You said I go to New Orleans Seminary. Um, I go to the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. I uh, can't have Dr. Reggie holding that one over my head. Um, but uh, I am thrilled to be here with you this morning. Um, I have, like Jason said, I've been at the, the seminary in New Orleans for a year now, a couple of semesters, and the Lord has been teaching me a lot. I've been learning a lot. Some of you may disagree by the time I'm done with you this morning. Um, but I think that uh, God has been using this time to really shape me and to uh, refine my call in the ministry. And um, I'm excited to be here this morning to share with you some of the things that I've been learning. Um, when Dr. Reggie originally, uh, he texted me a couple weeks ago to ask me if I would be in town this weekend to, to fill the pulpit for him as he's in Disney World. And I told him, you know, let me, let me look at my schedule. Let me check and make sure that I, I can be here because, you know, I want him to think that I stay pretty busy down there. And uh, I went and I looked and I, I checked and made sure everything kind of clicked. And he called me the next morning to kind of tell me some things that I needed to know. And I asked him, I said, what do you want me to preach on? Because usually I like to be told what to preach on. That way, you know, if the sermon goes poorly, I kind of have that excuse in my back pocket to pull out and say, you know, I just kind of played the hand I was dealt. Um, because I, I, you know, I can just lean on that in case things go badly. Uh, but he said, no, I've been kind of planning around this weekend, um, so you can preach on whatever you want. And I don't know if you've checked recently the page count in your Bible, but there is a lot of material to choose from. <laughs> and it can be pretty overwhelming. Um, but as I sat down and I started to kind of figure out what, what maybe the Lord was, was laying on my heart as I was praying through it and looking through God's Word, um, I kind of felt... He was, he was calling me to, to preach on something that he's been teaching me in my own personal study, in my own personal time. And as even leading up to Dr. Reggie reaching out to me, I'd been going through the book of Hebrews, and God had been teaching me some things. So this morning, I want to I share with you some of the things that the Lord has been teaching me in my own personal study. And uh, the premise this morning is this. I think oftentimes, we as Christians in our day-to-day lives, um, there's a little bit of a, a disconnect between the way that we view Christ, the way that we interact with Christ, and who He is as according to Scripture, how great He is. That's not to say that we believe lies about Christ. It's not to say that we serve a false Jesus. But I think it's our natural inclination as sinners living in a fallen world to make Jesus someone smaller, something smaller than He really is. I think this shows up when we, when we allow Jesus to be secondary in our life, or we don't um, consult him or make him a, a real true part of decisions we make, um, I think that it's only natural that this happens. And I think that it's the aim of the enemy for Christians to have a small view of Christ because I believe that a small view of Christ makes for weak Christians and weak Christians make for easy prey. Okay, so this morning what I hope to do is I hope to consult God's Word and, and set some of the distractions aside and really look at what God's Word tells us about Christ. And hopefully we can, we can see Him for being as great as He is this morning. That sound good? All right. 
We're going to be, like I said, in the book of Hebrews. So I'm going to go ahead and read the text this morning. Uh, We're just going to read the first four verses, okay? So uh, Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom he, He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now here in these opening statements, the author of Hebrews, which, which by the way, we, we aren't very clear on who the author of Hebrews was. Some would tell you that it was Paul. However, when you look at most of the books in the New Testament that we know for certain Paul wrote, uh, when you compare the syntax and the grammar and the organization as a whole, um, and you you compare it to Hebrews, a lot of the the discrepancies or the differences don't really make a lot of sense. So most scholars would tell you that have studied the New Testament that Paul likely was not the author of Hebrews. However, it is likely that he would have known the author of Hebrews. It was not him who penned the original letter. So, uh, but we, what we do know about the author is that he's very clearly an educated man who was very familiar with the, the law of the Old Testament. Uh, he was likely a Jew. And what he does here is, is the, the whole purpose or the whole premise of the book of Hebrews, I believe aptly summed up, could be simply the preeminent Christ, which is what I've, I've uh, titled my sermon this morning, the preeminent Christ, preeminent meaning surpassing all others, the Christ who surpasses all others. And here in his opening statement, I believe the author of Hebrews is very clear in what his his aim is in this letter. It's to demonstrate to readers how great Christ is and how surpassing his greatness is in any and all things they may come in contact with. Um, And so I want to just set up here this morning, since I don't have the next several weeks to take you systematically through the book of Hebrews, I think that these opening statements, we can draw some, some truth about who Christ is. Um, it is, by nature of the topic, um, I'm biting off a little bit more than I can chew, right? I, I, can't, I can't tell you in just you know, these next 30 minutes, uh, maybe 20 if y'all are lucky, um, the greatness of Christ. He's just, he's that much better than anything we've seen He's that much better than anything we've experienced that I can't hope to even begin to scratch the surface this morning. So I'm, I'm leaning on the Holy Spirit to begin to drive some of these, these truths home in our, in our lives and in our hearts. Um, but the first thing that I want you to see this morning about Jesus is that He is the full and final revelation of God to humanity. Okay, in, in Star Wars... Yeah, that's a sharp transition, right? In Star Wars... The Empire Strikes Back. So y'all are with me. Y'all know which one I'm talking about. I'm talking about the second movie in the original trilogy, the ones that were made before I was born, you know, the, the good ones. Um, in that movie, after the opening act, remember they're on the, 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 the snow planet and they, they, they kill all the walkers and whatnot. Um, after the opening act, Luke Skywalker separates from the rest of his, his friends, right? Like Han Solo, Leia, Chewbacca. Um, he separates from them, and he's going to a distant planet to be trained by a Jedi Master. Are y'all with me? You know what I'm talking about? He's going to this distant planet to be trained by a Jedi Master in hopes of himself becoming a Jedi Master so that he can you know, face the challenges ahead. 
And while he's there, he has this vision. He has this vision of his friends in great pain, right? Like the friends that he's separated with. And he's so far away from his friends that he has no way of communicating with them, right? Like they're not in constant, you know, you know they're not playing phone tag or anything. They can't, they can't get in touch with one another. Um, likely his friends couldn't even find him if they wanted to. That's how remote he is. Um, and when he, when he sees this vision, he knows that the only thing he can do is he himself go to them and try to do something about their predicament. Okay? And <clears throat> though the, the rescue mission probably doesn't go exactly how he wanted it to, um, he goes. And he tries to intervene and save his friends. And what I want you to see this morning is I think that in the same way that he had to go to his friends to reestablish contact, to reinitiate contact, to try and intervene in the trouble that they were getting into, um, I think that in the same way Christ, or God, if you will, has to come to us. Right? Like apart from the intervention of Luke Skywalker, things would have been a lot worse for Leah and Chewie and Han and all them. Um, and apart from the intervention of God, we would also be in a world of trouble. Think about that. We have no way as humans, of reaching God. All right? Like, so there's not, there's, not, there's not an address you can send a, a letter to to get in touch with God, right? You can't find heaven on Google Maps. There's not a, there's not a cell signal strong enough to punch a message past the pearly gates, right? Like, I don't care what kind of crazy claims Verizon makes. It's not possible. Um, so he had to come to us. We're told, we're told here in the opening verse that long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So God initially established communication with humanity and spoke through the prophets of the Old Testament, right? Like, so like Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah, you, you name it. The Old Testament comes from prophets, uh, what, we have, what we know of the Old Testament. And what we know of what God told the Israelites was through prophets, right? So like God would speak to an individual who would then speak to his people on God's behalf. And that was never the intent, right? Like that was never the the end game of God to communicate with humanity in this way for the rest of time. Thank goodness. Now I think we get a picture of how God wanted all along to communicate with people in the garden, right? Like God walking among his people. God communicating with his people. And we're told that God in these last days has spoken to us by His Son. And what of the Son? In verse 3, we are told that He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. He is the radiance of the glory of God. When Jesus came... He reflected to the people around Him who God was because He shared a divine nature with the Father. He is God. He could reveal to us to a greater extent who God was than any prophet before Him because whereas the prophets before Him were sinful men, Christ was God. So in His coming, He has shown us God. And think about this. Any means by which you continue to know God any means by which you continue to seek God, hinge upon Christ and what He has done. The only means by which we can know God is through Christ. 
Okay, and it says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Think about that, that for just a moment here. A lot of the things that we take for granted, breath, the sun rising in the morning, our earth continuing to move in the way that it has been designed, our relationships, our families, everything, everything continues because of the providence of God. It's upheld by the word of His power. If Jesus did not wish us to continue to be, we would not be. We, try, we, we, we make a lot of these, these things about you know, physics and, and science can explain away a lot of the things. Um, and while I believe God uses science and physics to continue to make us, you know, to continue us along our existence, and uh, those are things that He has set in place. If He did not will it to continue, it would not continue. We do not serve a small Jesus. And the next thing I want you to see this morning, the other thing I want you to see this morning, is that Jesus will inherit all because of His work on the cross. We read in, uh, in verse 2 that his, in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things through whom also He created the world. And so, so Jesus is, is going to inherit everything, right? I, I don't think we can really wrap our minds around that to, to own all that God has created, but that is the inheritance that Jesus is due, right? And we're told that somehow, uh, while, while I don't really under, I don't, I don't know what, Exactly, that's going to look like when Jesus does inherit all things. I'm confident of this. It, it involves people. People is a primary inheritance of Christ. Right? Um, God, in Isaiah chapter 45, makes a promise. He swears by Himself, because there's no higher name by which God can swear. He swears by Himself that every knee will bow before Him, and that every tongue will swear allegiance to him or every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. God makes that father. I mean, God makes that promise in Isaiah. And Paul, writing in Philippians, references this promise. And he tells us that it is Jesus who this prophecy is about. It's Jesus who this promise is referring to. And when he tells us, he says that it is at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow. And it is Jesus who every, name, every tongue will confess as Lord. And he, he links this, in, this, this promise about Jesus with his work on the cross. What Christ has done somehow makes him, him worthy of this inheritance of people confessing him as Lord and bowing before him. He says that it's because of Christ's obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross, that people will, will confess him as Lord and will bow before him. I want to read to you this morning uh, from Revelation. And before y'all, <laughs> uh, don't, don't worry. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not here trying to preach from Revelation because I have a couple of semesters of seminary under my belt. I just want to read to you from this vision that John has. And I, I think it speaks for itself. All right, so in Revelation chapter 5, um, John is having a vision. And it says that he sees the one seated on the throne of heaven, right? So we recognize that as God the Father, seated on the throne 
of heaven. And it says that he sees in the Father's right hand a scroll sealed seven times. And this, in the, in the ancient world, uh, a scroll sealed seven times would have been a will of some sort, an inheritance of some sort. And they sealed it seven times to prevent anyone from tampering with it. Uh, and only in the event of the one who wrote the will passing or um, the individual coming of age that was worthy to break the scroll and read it, uh, break the seals and read the scroll, only in that event could, could the one who was found worthy by the parameters set out by the, the writer of the will uh, could they could they break it and see what the will said? Okay, so that's where we are. Um, in verse two of uh, Revelation chapter five, it says, "And John saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals?" And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And John says that he began to weep. Loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to him, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. He's conquered. So that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying... Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, I'm not going to pretend that I understand everything going on here. Um, but one thing is abundantly clear. said, so Jesus stands alone in His worthiness to inherit all things. Something categorically different than, than any man who's ever lived or any man who ever will live. He's, he is God. And because of what He has done on the cross, He will receive all things. We're told that His name is greater than the angels. In response to Him taking the right hand of God. Notice, notice that it says that it's after making purification for sins. In verse 3 of Hebrews, it's after making purifications for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, the seat of all authority, the seat of all glory and honor, having become as much superior to angels as the name His inherited is more excellent than theirs. Christ has inherit a name greater than all. All right, so here, in these first four um, verses of Hebrews, I think that we get, we get a few implications about Jesus. Um, one is that he is, he is greater than any other prophet who's ever existed, right? Because he was able to fully show us who God is because he was God. He has revealed to us God in a way that no other prophet ever was able to, and no prophet ever will be able to. Second is this, we see that he's greater than any other priest. Because we're told later on in the book of Hebrews that he only needed one sacrifice. 
Whereas the prophets of the Old Testament would have to offer many sacrifices because they themselves weren't, weren't perfect. They'd offer many sacrifices regularly. Jesus only needed one. So he makes better payment for sin than any other priest and he intercedes for us better than any other priest. Because whereas in the Old Testament they had to go before the priests and they had to go into the Holy of Holies, they had to go through the big curtain to talk to God on behalf of the people, Christ has gone through the higher, greater curtain into the Holy of Holies in the very presence of God. So we can be confident that Jesus has the ear of God. He is God. And when we pray to Jesus, we also can be confident that we have the ear of God. He has made better payment than any other priest, and He intercedes for us better than any other priest. And He is greater than any other king. Because the throne that He sits on cannot be taken from Him. It will never fade. He sits at the very right hand of the Father. And He will inherit all things. When He says something shall come to pass, it will come to pass. He's greater than any other king. And so, <clears throat> what, what, what should this, this prompt us to? Um, you know, I think the, the original audience of Hebrews, uh, though we're not entirely sure where the, where the book was written, um, or to what exact population it was written to, it's pretty evident that it was written to a Jewish population. And um, Jews faced a unique problem. Uh, when Jews came to faith in Christ, uh, they, they kind of had the problem of, you know, they, they grew up a Jew. Yeah, well, duh, Andrew. Um, but, but think about this for just a moment. So Jews had grown up experiencing uh, the, the, the Old Covenant, right? Like what God had set in place in the Old Testament. So they knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that they had heard from God, that their forefathers had known God, that Moses had done what the Old Testament says that he had done, that the law that, that God gave them still stood. And so they, they had grown up obeying all these, these laws, trying to follow the law, trying to memorize the law, uh, trying to you know, obey you know, the laws of circumcision and, and, and food uh, purification law, like things like that. Like they had they'd grown up doing these things. And then when Jesus came, uh, the author of Hebrews tells us in, in Hebrews chapter 8 that he's established a new and better covenant, making the old one obsolete. And so the tricky thing for Jews was as they, as they accepted that Jesus was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, uh, there was a lot of Jews that wouldn't have. Right? And so if they're in a Jewish, you know, if you're in a, in a, a Jewish family and you, and you confess that Christ was the fulfillment of all in the Old Testament, um, they faced a measure of persecution from their families. They could have lost uh, loved ones that would turn their backs on them. They, they likely would have lost influence and power in whatever community they were in. And... It would become, in light of the persecution, very easy for Jews who still followed you know, the Levitical law to convince new Christians 
that they still had to obey the old laws. Right? Like this is a consistent problem in the New Testament. You read in Galatians, Paul's dealing with the same thing in the church of Galatia. He's writing, saying that they don't have to worry about the Old Testament law anymore. Jesus has established a new and better covenant. He's, he's, he's brought something greater than what was before. And the writer of Hebrews is writing here, when I, when I read the book of Hebrews, it just seems as if he's saying, no, 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 no. You're getting it all wrong. To go back to the old covenant, to trust in the laws of your forefathers, is to take away from what Jesus has done. To try and add any, any ritual to what Jesus has done, to still cling on to circumcision or food, you know, dietary restrictions, uh, any, any of these things you add to what Jesus has done takes away from what He's done. Like, if you're not trusting completely in what Christ has done for you, then you're missing it. And it seems as if he's writing, he's, he's telling the Jewish Christians who, have, who are just in this, this struggle between holding on to their old way of living, the old way of the old covenant, struggling between that and what Christ has done, because following Christ requires giving up some of those old rituals. He's writing as if to say, <laughs> anything that you have to give up in following Christ, any, anything that you have to set aside, you can be confident that it is not worth more than what you are gaining in following Christ. He's charging them to, to let go of the other things that, uh, that the Jews are telling them and to cling on in faith to what Christ has promised. And so for us today, I think we can be confident because, you know, Christ does require, you know, living for Christ does require a fair amount of sacrifice. I'm sure I could probably... Get a witness to that this morning. Um, following Christ requires a lot of sacrifice, but we can be confident He will never ask us to give up anything that is worth more than what we are receiving in Him. It's not going to happen. There is nothing. Christ is greater than anything else. And so in closing, in these last few minutes, I want to offer a little bit of... Uh, practical application for us this morning in light of these truths of who Christ is and what He's done. All right, and the first one is this. I'm, I'm going to pull this application from later on in the book of Hebrews. Um, the first thing is this. Let us draw near to Him. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let's get there real quick. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 23. Sorry. Uh, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies 
wash it pure with water. How incredible is it that the, that the writer of Hebrews has, has, has up to this point um, just made a case for Christ being greater than any, anything we've ever, ever seen or experienced. And his application is so draw near to him. How amazing is it that, that the one who will be crowned, the one before whom every knee will bow, the one before whom every tongue will confess as Lord, How incredible is it that that individual we have been told to draw near to? We get a beautiful picture in the Gospels of Jesus loving sinners, (laughs) of desiring to know them, of drawing near to them himself and inviting them to draw near to him. There's no higher honor than knowing Christ, so may we draw near to him. Second is this, let us lay aside our sin and live in obedience to him. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus. And notice, notice, my, notice my ordering here. Right? Like first, we are to draw near to Jesus. And second, are we to lay aside these things that entangle us? I did did that on purpose. I think too often we get it backwards. Right? Like, I think that too often we think that we need to lay aside our our sin, which so easily entangles us, and then we can go to Christ. You'll simply never be righteous enough or good enough to feel worthy or justified in going to the feet of Christ. He desires that you come to Him And I believe that proximity to Christ allows us to more readily let go of the things that so easily entangle us. I think that a close encounter with Christ is one of the greatest motivators towards letting go of these things that so easily entangle us. And the final thing. Let us live lives of worship. Chapter 12. Verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Our lives should be defined by our worship of this Jesus. You know, when I... When I, when I get a, a close look at who Christ is, when I, when I, when I feel like I'm closest to Him, it's, it's in those moments that I, I had what I, I can only really explain as, as an ache <laughs> to see Him receive His due through my own life while I'm here. I want to proclaim the excellency of Christ to everyone around me, Right? And that, that compulsion or that desire is strongest when I am close to Him. And I look forward to, with eager expectation, the day on which Christ will receive His due. The day that He has purchased the right to on the cross. We do not serve a small Christ. Christ is greater than anything else that we so quick are so quick to put in front of Him. 
May we live lives of worship. I have a, a quote that I came across that I want to I read to you in this last moment. You know. It says, Jesus became the Son of Man that we might become the sons of God. He was born contrary to the laws of nature. He lived in poverty, was reared in obscurity, and only once crossed the boundary of the land in which he was born, and that in his childhood. He had no wealth or influence, and he had neither training nor education in the world's schools. His relatives were inconspicuous and uninfluential, yet in infancy he startled the king. In boyhood he puzzled the learned doctors, In manhood he ruled the course of nature. He walked upon the billows and hushed the seas to sleep. He healed the multitudes without medicine and made no charge for his services. He never wrote a book, and yet all the libraries of the world could not hold the books about him. He never wrote a song, yet he has furnished the theme for more songs than all songwriters together. He never founded a college, yet all the schools together cannot boast of as many students as he He never practiced medicine, and yet he has healed more broken hearts than all the doctors have healed broken bodies. This Jesus Christ is the star of astronomy, the rock of geology, the lion and the lamb of zoology, the harmonizer of all discords, the healer of all diseases. Throughout history, great men have come and gone, yet he lives on. Herod could not kill him, Satan could not seduce him, death could not destroy him, and the grave could not hold him. Church, our Christ is worth every ounce of attention we can give Him. He is worthy of our every moment of our lives. For in light of that, may we draw near to Him. May we lay aside our sin. And may we live lives of worship to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You. Uh, Lord, for who You are. Um, Jesus, we thank you for for what you've done. Or we thank you for the assurance that you will inherit all things. Lord, may we not overlook you in our day-to-day lives. May the reality of who you are stay with us at all times. May we be reminded of it constantly. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in here who has not experienced you personally... Lord, that they would draw near this morning. Lord, may you be with us. We love you and we praise you. It's your name I pray. Amen.